the Cold War was a time of great stress, worry, and significant world upheaval. While never moving into direct combat with each other, the United States and the Soviet Union used every other tool in their arsenal, from economic sanctions and supporting foreign governments friendly to their philosophies, to proxy wars and overthrowing foreign governments that were unfriendly to their philosophies. Both countries spent significant amounts of money in order to prepare for the anticipated start of hostilities, and those preparations are the source of constant fascination today, as more and more of those operations are declassified. However, the United States and the Soviet Union were not the only two countries that had secret Cold War plans in case the worst ever happened. Canada also had a secret operation that would ensure that if nuclear war were ever to happen, the Canadian government would still be able to operate. However, the secrecy of that operation was undermined by a few different factors. The sheer scale of the operation, one intrepid reporter, a rented helicopter, and most damningly of all, 78 toilets. My name is Braden Thorvaldson, and this is... What? Explain. In the late 1950s, tensions were increasing between the United States and the Soviet Union. The Suez Canal Crisis, where Egyptians armed with Soviet weapons seized control of the Suez Canal, and British, French, and American forces were used in trying to open the canal again, had ratcheted up worries on both sides of the Iron Curtain, and nuclear missiles were being moved into both NATO and Soviet bloc countries. Additionally, Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev had moved more towards a confrontational stance, challenging the United States to a shooting match in 1957 and demanding that NATO leave West Berlin in 1958. The Cuban Revolution ended on January 1, 1959, with Fidel Castro leading a communist government less than 100 miles away from the U.S. mainland, and the Viet Cong started making inroads in Vietnam. The United States and the Soviet Union both engaged in some significant saber-rattling during that period, and Canada, being both a staunch ally of the United States and located right in between the two countries, did have something of a worry that they would be the center of either a targeted response by the Soviets or even just an off-course missile. In 1958, Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker signed off on the creation of almost 50 sites known as Emergency Government Headquarters, to be built across Canada. These shelters were created to be able to house members of government in a safe location in case of a nuclear attack if the Cold War ever reached a boiling point. Diefenbaker authorized not only the creation of a location to secure federal civil servants, politicians, and officials, but had plans for building six regional government headquarters across Canada, so that provincial politicians would be able to be safe from a potential nuclear attack as well. When combined with several bunkers designed to house essential government employees within branches of the Government of Canada, within the National Capital Region in Ottawa, as well as supporting relay stations and communication stations, the shelters were a key part in the Canadian Continuity of Government plan. The vast majority of the shelters were built with great secrecy in rural areas outside of major cities to avoid the possibility of their location being leaked and then becoming targets for nuclear attacks. They needed to be close to provincial and federal capitals 
so that the government and military officials could be ushered in there when there was word of an attack and could be sealed in before the nuclear missiles landed in Canada. However, they also needed to be far enough away that they could be built without too many onlookers wondering, Hey, what exactly are they building out there? Secret nuclear bunkers really are only effective as the secret part, after all. Diefenbaker's program was named Project Ease for Experimental Army Signals Establishment as a cover for its true purpose, and the explanation given was that the government was simply expanding on their communications infrastructure. While the Canadian government built all of the bunkers within three years of the authorization by Diefenbaker, the Central Emergency Government Headquarters, the place where the Prime Minister, his cabinet, and other senior civil service and military officials would be located, was to be the crowning achievement. Canadian Forces Station CARP, or CFS CARP for short, was designed to shelter up to 565 people for up to a month with no additional supplies needing to be brought in case of nuclear threat. The location was upwind of Ottawa, where the suspected strike would have been, so this minimized the risk of radioactive fallout spreading out towards the bunker. Of those 565 people that were designated to be essential enough to be ensconced to CFS CARP would be the Prime Minister, the Governor-General, who was the Queen of England's representative in Canada, 12 senior defense staff members, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, and the President of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or CBC. These people, and many more like them, were chosen in order to be able to keep the country from descending into anarchy after the bombs had fallen. However, CFS CARP was not just a concrete cube in the ground. It had 9,000 square meters, or almost 100,000 square feet of space, spread out over four subterranean levels. It included an emergency broadcast studio for the CBC, in order for them to continue to be able to broadcast and inform the remaining population of the events of what was going on, including the status of government and public service bulletins that have been created by public affairs officers and journalists that would have also been ensconced in the bunker. There was even a massive vault created on the lowest level for the gold reserves of the Bank of Canada to be stored for safekeeping. There were over 350 rooms in the four floors, including a decontamination facility, a war room, cafeterias, and medical and dental facilities. Additionally, the entire structure was designed to be able to withstand a nuclear blast of up to 5 megatons that had detonated from 1.8 kilometers away. All of this required a significant amount of building materials, and had to be done with as much secrecy as humanly possible. The construction of CFS CARP began in 1959 and required 32,000 tons of concrete and 5,000 tons of steel to complete. This is a much larger amount of building materials than would be needed to build the average communications bunker, which, if anyone asked what was being built, it was a communications bunker. Don't ask any more questions. However, George Zimmer, a reporter for the Toronto Telegram, was skeptical of that government statement and wanted more information. In fact, he ended up chartering a helicopter that he flew over the building site and saw the massive hole in the ground, the foundations of which would be CFS Carp, and 78 toilets 
sitting around on the construction site, waiting to be installed. The 78 toilet seemed a bit excessive for a communications bunker, as well as the significantly larger than the average communication bunker hole. Zimmer ended up publishing his findings in the Telegram on September 11, 1961, under the headline, This is the Diefenbunker, which was the name used by the public and opposition politicians for the entire remainder of Diefenbaker's term in office, and the secret bunker was no longer a secret anymore. The Canadian government was forced to admit in a statement that there was, in fact, a secret government fallout shelter being built, and one of Canada's closest-kept secrets of the Cold War was exposed to the public, due to 78 toilets. CFS CARP was never used by any prime minister, as events during the Cold War never reached the boiling point that many feared it would at the time. The facility was decommissioned in 1994, after the threat of Soviet missiles was deemed low enough that keeping the facility staffed 24-7 with 120 staff members was too expensive. Today, the facility has been reopened as the Diefenbunker, Canada's Cold War Museum. Many of the rooms are in fact open to the touring public, and you can go on guided tours throughout some of the facility, or even take a look around yourself. Having gone myself a couple times, I highly recommend it. It is a genuinely amazing thing to look around and see the place that the highest echelons of the Canadian government would have had to live in in case the Cold War had boiled over. After a month underground, waiting for the bombs to stop falling, and the radiation to dissipate down to an acceptable level, the occupants of that bunker would have had to come out to an unknown world and attempt to put back what was broken, to try and rebuild a country devastated by nuclear war. It is a sobering thought, and one that hopefully will never come to pass. At the end of this terrible year, and hopefully the start of a better one, I just want to say thank you all for listening. I hope you're all safe and healthy. And be good to each other, albeit from a safe, socially distant way. Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks.